From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schachman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. On this episode, we're talking about the Proud Boys. They've popped up in our reporting over the last year, and while we have been hesitant to give them an outsized platform, it's really hard to ignore that they've become part of our local political landscape. Many things about the Proud Boys, including their name, are a joke. But that does not make them harmless. In fact, it's part of what makes them dangerous, along with their embrace of street violence, something I've reported on firsthand. But underneath the kind of jokey irony, what are the Proud Boys? Far-right, alt-right, alt-light? We've settled on the term neo-fascist, but what does that mean? And what does this neo-fascist group want? On this episode, we're going to try to answer that question with our guest Chardon Murray, a criminology lecturer at UNCW and a research fellow with the Khalifa Eiler Institute, a think tank that recently wrote a major report on the Proud Boys at the request of the House January 6th committee. Murray co-authored that report, which lays out the Proud Boys' history, their evolving style and goals, their involvement in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and their more recent turn away from a national group to what's called leaderless resistance, a grassroots approach that's seen them show up at local government meetings, including the school board and health and human services meetings that we've covered here at HQR. Murray and her colleagues' research included a study of 532 incidents. 1,190 networked relationships involving 465 individuals and 199 groups. The study spans five years and includes over 2,000 hours of in-depth interviewing and ethnographic research. Okay, let's get into it. Professor Chardon Murray, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So to get started, how did you get involved with this project at the Khalifa Eiler Institute? That is so much of a harder question than uh, it at first appears. Um, uh, you know, several years ago, when the Proud Boys first emerged, um, I had been, you know, friendly with Samantha Kuttner, uh, who's the, the basically the lead researcher on this. And she got in touch with me talking about, you know, uh, have you been paying attention to the Proud Boys? Can you let me know if you know of any events? And I'll be honest, at that point in time, I was like, oh, they're just a joke, you know, which is, is part of their allure in a lot of ways. Part of the reason that they've been uh, so successful is that... Um, it is easy to not take them seriously, and when you do, you sound foolish. Um, and so she asked for advice and everything, and we uh, re- remained friendly. Um, when she got the opportunity to do this report, um, you know, uh, she and another friend of ours uh, named uh, Björn Eidler, you know, who is uh, one of the co-founders of the Khalifa Eidler Institute, um, they got in touch with me for assistance with the data collection and, and the writing of the report, and I was like, uh, I jumped at the opportunity. So could you tell us who the Proud Boys actually are? Because I think a lot of people don't have a lot of familiarity with that organization. Absolutely. Um, well, it, it, that is one of those types of questions that seems deceptively simple, um, but is is not. Just like with any kind of you know organization, specifically ideologically, politically focused types of organizations, they evolve over time. Uh, the Proud Boys have been particularly good uh, at their evolution. In 2016, they were started by uh, Gavin McInnes. Really, the the kind of uh, origin idea of this group is it's it's sort of like old school brought to life the movie old school a fraternity for dudes who are no longer in college right uh, especially one that's not politically correct um, the way that they kind of depart from that old school model is they are and were from their founding sort of explicitly political 
you know, the, the main sort of uh, central tenet is, is this idea that the, the West is best, right? This um, exaltation of Western society, you know, Western chauvinism of Western sort of this Western idea of mi- misogyny, right? From their founding had, you know, these explicitly sort of political ideologies and goals and, and things of that nature. Now, as the group has evolved, for almost from the very beginning, they were very much in Donald Trump's camp, both because of their connection to Roger Stone, as well as just their, a lot of Proud Boys, when they saw Trump elected, they were like, this is, this is our guy, you know? I, I think at one point McGinnis said, if, he, if Donnie wins, we'll just walk around the White House or something to that effect. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, during there are accounts of, um, you know, when when he won the election in 2016, you know, they they had a big event where they brought everybody together and of them saying, you know, this is our time. It it was sort of a marker to them that was the first sort of step in granting legitimacy to their ideals of, quote unquote, venerating the housewife by really sort of derogating women in, in a sense this this white uh, male victimhood kind of narrative, but this coupling it with striking back, often in violent ways that that proves, you know, it, it's it's really like if you were if you wanted to find a poster child for toxic masculinity, this idea of uh, hyper masculine focusing on on fighting uh, as a way to solve problems, uh, you know, that kind of thing, that's really what they came to embody. I want to touch on the the Western element of this because yes, me I, too. Good, I yeah. think that's a, a big question that a lot of people have is they always are espousing we are not racist, we're not white supremacist. So what does Western mean? Um, they do have people of color in their membership roles, and they always point to those members as evidence that they are not a white supremacist organization. So what is Western chauvinism then? Well, we know that Gavin McInnes had... Um, a lot of ideas that Western correlated to white. You know, we do know that. But we also know that there is a a real benefit to groups like the Proud Boys, both sort of moderating their language and, and adapting their language for different groups, for different areas, um, especially, you know, post-January 6th as they became more decentralized. You know, there, there are some groups that are more sort of explicitly racist and uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, some of them have been sort of performatively removed, you know, from uh, the Proud Boys charter or whatever. When you really look into the basis of what he means by Western, McInnes has often equated the two, Western and white. Uh, you know, one of the three texts, uh, you know, three books that is is... You know, uh, McGinnis, when he first kind of created this group that is is considered to be sort of foundational for their uh, their ideology uh, is is Buchanan's Death of the West, which is a tome that is, you know, kind of overtly sort of couched in this idea that um, through, you know, uh, black and brown people having more babies and having more immigration that we are uh, diluting Western culture um, and, and, you know, kind of demoting it in, in a way. The myth of white replacement. The great replacement conspiracy theory. Absolutely. Yeah. So it seems like they've done this this dance publicly yeah. where they have made a show of rejecting mainstream culture with mainstream culture, meaning, you know, a progressive, liberal, multicultural society. But at the same time, they've you know tried to put up some 
walls between them and actual American neo-Nazis. They've avoided the Jewish question. They've, which is just a nice way of saying they won't openly, you know, say that Jews should be eliminated, but they will make Holocaust jokes. Oh, absolutely. This leads me to this idea of why it's hard for researchers like you to answer some of these questions sometimes is this layer of irony that's wrapped that goes all the way back to the origins of this. And McGinnis is a failed stand-up comedian, so maybe that has something to do with it. That was in this report. I did not know that before I read that. That is an enlightening factoid. But oh. talk a little bit about this this sort of almost protective layer of irony that they've had around them for since the get-go. Oh, it's it's one of the features that I personally think is the most that makes them so as successful as they are. Um, you know, I, I already mentioned before, if you take them seriously, you sound like a fool. And I believe that's by design. Um, that's, you know, when we look at McGinnis's history, you know, McGinnis is one of the co-founders of Vice. Um, you know, he uh, was a, a big fan of a lot of texts and writing. Um, that does appeal a lot to uh, white males that uh, eventually sort of find their way into extremism, various types of extremism, various flavors of extremism. You know, this the Fight Club, somebody who I mentioned in the report, Jim Goad, um, you know, these were people who wrote this sort of transgressive style of humor. It's meant to obfuscate what they really think in a lot of ways. You know, it gives them that sort of plausible deniability, like I, I just made a rape joke or I just, um, you know, threw out the N-word or I, I appeared in blackface, but it's a joke. Right. Yeah. A lot of this seems to be politics by the rules of stand-up comedy, <laughs> where like you could just back up and say, no, 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 no. That was that joke is actually satirizing racism. I myself, I'm not a racist. Exactly. And exactly. when you hear about things like you have this in the report, the um, the ritual we're talking about, the you know, the the ranks, so to speak, of oh. the Proud Boys. And one of the ranks, I believe it's the, the second or the third, where you have to get beat in like another gang. But instead of pledging allegiance to the gang, you have to name five breakfast cereals. Yes, uh, before the beating will stop. Before the uh, I believe that's the second degree. Yeah. Yes. And um, if you say that out loud, like... I can imagine there being like an anti-terrorist task force at like the FBI and trying to get through that with a straight like that. But that seems to be the goal, right? It, I mean, it really is. It's once again, it's one of the reasons that when I mean, you know, we always joke that uh, Samantha Kuttner has, uh, you know, she's clairvoyant or something. She could tell the future uh, because she was on it Im almost immediately when they emerged uh, nationally. And I was just like, oh, they're just a joke. And and. You know, in hindsight, when you look at people whose tactics um, they both sort of copied and also, you know, they, they've come, you know, there's been this sort of um, convergence of the two. When you look at Roger Stone, that's a lot of the things that make Roger Stone so effective is, I mean, he's got a tattoo of Nixon on his back. Yeah. You know, he, he, he does so many things that make him seem ridiculous that people are quick to to just dismiss him. So that's one part of it. The other part is if they ever get caught for anything, you know, this is something we know from uh, terrorist groups and extremist groups. You know, we used to believe that they always claimed terrorist attacks and things like that. But sometimes, especially the, the really effective groups will wait until they see how the their kind of public, the, the population that tolerates them or supports them, how they respond to it, how it looks kind of publicly, and then they'll decide whether or not they're going to claim credit. And, and, it's, and it's a very similar kind of tactic. They can do anything. And, and this also plays into this idea of this decentralized kind of uh, what Beam called leaderless resistance kind of group. You know, 
you can have crazy groups that do, you know, increasingly extreme things. But if they if they get in trouble for it, if they get bad press for it, then all you have to do is denounce them or make it a joke or say or claim it's a joke. You know, right. it's just a joke. And you're a whiny liberal snowflake. I think of, you know, I thinking about hate groups in the United States or far right groups in the United States. You've got the Ku Klux Klan and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. All of them have these, you know, pseudo historical roots to their organization name. There's a, a certain level of self seriousness about it. But the Proud Boys are named after a song from Aladdin. <laughs> Proud of your boy. Proud yeah. of your boy. So how serious could they be? So I, that seems to have helped them dissemble their way out of trouble until they started actually engaging in violence. And one of the things in this report that seems like a repeating thing was the uh, the street fight in New York. Um, when Gavin McGinnis sort of stepped back yes. from the group, the argument was that the NYPD banged them up on gang charges. Because if you're acting in unison, then you can get much stricter penalties and you can Absolutely. rope more people into prosecution. And he said, well, if I'm not the head of it anymore, I'm paraphrasing, but he's, if I'm not the head of it anymore, then clearly there's no gang structure and those charges are harder to prove. And it seems like they did that again after the January 6th attack. Oh, in addition to that sort of making everything a joke and making you sound stupid for taking them serious. Uh, another one of their really big strengths uh, is, you know, the, this ability to adapt. A- and they're adapting to a lot of different things. They're adapting to politics. They're adapting to, you know, they, they're very much watching what's going on in mainstream politics and the mainstreaming of a lot of these things that, you know, we used to think were, you know, very fringe and, and clearly conspiracy theories, right? You know, they're adapting to that. Throughout their history, they have uh, been very opportunistic in terms of the, the um, you know, their cause celebres, you know, their, the, what they take up, you know, what kind of issues they, they follow. Um, and, um, and, and this ability to sort of drop things and, and rebrand and decentralize because they're reacting to crackdowns from law enforcement, crackdowns, um, from, you know, uh, what little there are from the sort of mainstream sort of political, uh, figures and that kind of thing, uh, and, and crackdowns from social media. All of those things uh, drive their moderation uh, of their language uh, and the changing of the structure of the group. Let me uh, kind of dial pull this back a little bit, mm-hmm. and we can just start by asking how were they involved with January 6th broadly, and then how did they change their structure after that in reaction to how the government has been looking for them oh, in the follow-up? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they kind of showed their hand a bit uh, with January 6th. That, that's really where people started to take them seriously. And that's really where, uh, you know, they recognized, um, uh, you know, we, we have to we have to change to to facilitate the furtherance of this movement, you know, uh, which they also did with after the Unite the Right rally. Um, you know, after Unite the Right, that's when McGinnis came out very clearly and was like, uh, we're alt-light, not alt-right, which is where they, you know, uh, they distanced themselves from the Jewish question and from some of these sort of more racially, explicitly racial uh, uh, factors. Um, so after January 6th, after they sort of showed their hand in terms of how connected they are, um, uh, which which they are very well connected. Um, they were the the tip of the spear, so to speak, um, uh, almost explicitly when it comes, or almost literally when it comes to uh, breaking into the Capitol. Yeah, um, I just I just want to dial in on that real quick because there's yeah. stuff in this report that was new to probably a lot of people. 
and that had to do with their communication, their staging, not just Enrique Otario on Twitter saying, you know, raise the black flag, but like actual boots on ground logistics stuff that happened. Absolutely. I mean, they had ham radios. Um, they had, um, uh, you know, they, they had a plan. They had a strategy. They had multiple layers of groups. I mean, if you're going to set up any kind of conspiracy, you know, you're going to have your your tiers of people you can trust at, at varying levels, you know, that have that are that have need to know information, right? The MOSD group that had, you know, most of the information that they had division leaders. That was like their sort of military wing almost. Well, I mean, they've had a, a few militant wings, but that was the that was more of the planning group okay, yeah. when it came to January 6th because that that was not created before uh, you know, late December. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is something the January 6th committee pointed out, you know, cause we were focusing so much on them. There's a, a lot. It's been really interesting watching the January 6th hearings because we don't have the kind of access to uh, these higher level officials, you know, to see the other pieces to the puzzle. But there were so many things that were, you know, missing pieces of the puzzle. We're like, OK, well, that's where that came from. Yeah. Following a lot of the events that happened in December that we have now know from the January 6th hearings, they answered the call and the, that call wasn't a public call, which I think is is interesting because all of the other ones have been pretty public, you know, the stand back, stand by. But they answered the call and they began to coordinate. They began to, um, you know, work with uh, other people, you know, using these kinds of strategies, these the 1776 strategy, you know, to they explicitly mentioned, you know, storming the Capitol. Yeah, and, you know, they knew what they were there for. And there's a reason that rally boys, you know, these these boys that were or these uh, members that are known to be OK with violence, with stepping the bounds, you know, kind of towing up to the line and really crossing the line of what is legal. There, there's a reason that they selected those members to be the tip of the spear. And they in one of Tario's uh, tweets, and he was the Cuban-American leader of the Proud Boys at the time, part of their strategy of distancing themselves from claims of white supremacy, Yes, was that they made the conscious choice beforehand not to dress in their trademark Proud Boys gear, their black and yellow bumblebee outfits. Exactly. I mean, many of them did, but the ones that were in MOSD did not. And that um, helped you them. You can see Biggs. Um, he, he was one of the ones that was very prominent, that's easy to recognize. And, and you know, compared to his events in the past, you know, he, he's a fourth degree probably. He's got all the tattoos and everything, you know. Um, uh, compared to events in the past, you know, he was very muted. Um, and, and the tactic was to all you got to do is muddy the waters. All, that's all you have to do. And then it's, they put out misinformation saying it was Antifa that was breaking into the building. Big time. Or, at, or the FBI. Or the FBI. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, those are the two people they blame, or the two groups they blame for everything. And, I mean, and that is common to really all of the far right uh, ecosystem. Okay. Well, I've got to put a pin in this for just a moment because we need to take a quick break. But we'll be back with my co host, Kelly Knoyer, and UNCW professor Shodan Murray as we continue to dig into the story of the Proud Boys. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman with my co-host for this episode, Kelly Kinoyer, and our guest, Shardone Murray, who co-authored a deep dive into the Proud Boys, written at the request of the House January 6th Committee, who wanted to know more about this group, its structures, and its goals. And this is the first time I've seen it sort of all in one place in this report, is kind of mapping the on-again, off-again relationship between the Proud Boys and law enforcement. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a, I mean, this is, this is not unprecedented, you know, um, and, and this also varies, you know, dramatically place to place. Because, I mean, again, we are talking about, especially now, what is a very decentralized movement, you know, so, so different groups in different areas are going to have different relationships with their local officials, you know, and, um, you know, uh, local officials, uh, uh, local elected officials often include, you know, I mean, they do include the sheriff, right? Um, we, we know that there is a ton of overlap when we're talking about Proud Boys. Um, most of these people are either uh, ex-military, ex-cops, uh, both, um, sometimes current military, current police, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you're talking nationally here. I, I am talking nationally, okay. yes. Um, this has obviously been a strategy on uh, for far-right groups, you know, for uh, several decades, actually, to... Um, you know, to recruit people in these places. I mean, they know where these places of power are, right? They're, they're friends until they're foes. Following the uh, 2020 election uh, results, uh, there's several events in which police, you know, cracked down on, on them and in ways they weren't necessarily used to, where events happened and people were charged, to where to some degree they, they saw this as you know, kind of striking back at the police. You know, there's there's this very sort of um, bipolar relationship, you know, um, it, 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 which I really think comes back to that sort of opportunistic, opportunistic nature of the group itself. I kind of want to throw out an example from my nice. history in Portland, if that's all right. So lovely. Back in 2018-19, I was working in Portland as a reporter, and there were a lot of Proud Boys working with this affiliated group called Patriot Prayer. And uh, journalists in the area uncovered that there was a police officer warning one of the Proud Boys who had a warrant out for his arrest to avoid certain areas of the protest they were at so he could avoid arrest. Absolutely. So there are actual text messages of police collaborating with the Proud Boys to protect them from their legal duty to arrest them knowing yes. that they had a warrant out for violent behavior. Um, so this is definitely kind of an explicit relationship in some situations, less explicit in others. I know I've witnessed definitely a number of protests where it seems like the police are favoring one side or the other. Going to those protests, I always would see the police having a very antagonistic relationship with the anti-fascists there. To be fair, anti-fascists yelling terrible things at the police. Mm -hmm. And then the Proud Boys saying, thank you for your service. Right. Um, this was pre-2020. I think that's probably changed quite a bit. I know that the mask mandates have made a lot of Proud Boys and a lot of far-right figures feel a lot more wary of the police, especially if they're enforcing mandates. So things have changed a little bit, but there is a little bit of that push and pull. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, ultimately... Uh, they're looking for those kinds of relationships, um, but they're also, just like with any other part of the Proud Boys, all, all of the Proud Boys are going to, they're going to support the people who help them and they're going to uh, denounce the people who don't. Um, once the, it's, it's, it's that type of evolution, that willing to evolve, uh, that makes them uh, so successful. Yeah. So after January 6th, 
again, I think of this as just a, a tactic they had found had been useful in the past that they did it again. Uh, you know, after the gang arrests in New York, they they say, well, if the snake has no head, how do you kill it? Right. This just seemed to be like a much broader application of that. And can you talk a little bit about how did they go from being kind of a national presence to now showing up at school board meetings? So why, how are they now showing up at the local level? Uh, well, it, it's it's part of that evolution again, just like like, like you were noting. Um, uh, you know, back in the eighties, uh, a white nationalist celebrated figure uh, among you know uh, really uh, domestic uh, terrorism and violent extremism circles, um, Louis Beam, came up with this concept of the leaderless resistance. Um, and this idea of the leaderless resistance is if you have a whole bunch of decentralized groups that are, um, you know, coordinated or, or um, centralized around this sort of central motivi- motivating cause or theme, right, uh, then, then groups can be picked off here and there. Groups can make mistakes here and there. And you can just sort of cut them off. It, but it doesn't damage the movement itself, this, this uh, uh, overarching movement. Um, uh, one of the things that researchers have noted, uh, you know, looking at the history of the application of the leaderless resistance, is that this is most effective when these kinds of groups can glom on to more legitimate or respectable types of groups. You know, when they uh, can, can hide uh, uh, under this guise of respectability. It benefits both groups in that they're all working towards, um, you know, the same goal. They all have the same enemies. Um, and, you know, the, the respectable groups can sort of, u- they, they're using each other. The respectable groups can use some of these more explicitly violent, at least, um, often, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about groups like um, the Arizona Proud Boys and the Wisconsin Proud Boys, uh, explicitly racist uh, and anti-Semitic groups, you know, they can use the the power that, that the fear, uh, that their intimidation, those, those more, um, violent groups that their intimidation uh, spreads. They can use that, you know, to further their goals. Uh, and for those extremist groups, they use that that guise of respectability, uh, you know, to hide in. I think that this also kind of brings me to the idea. There, there's this academic theory when it comes to extremism of pushing out while also pulling people in. Um, so if there's this central theory of white genocide and uh, actually genociding other people to prevent the white genocide that they're claiming exists, then they have that idea at its center. And then there's these organizations that fully believe in that and advocate against it. And they push out their ideas using hashtags, maybe, alongside MAGA, which is a more in- mainstream one. They'll hashtag white genocide next to hashtag MAGA and try and bring people into that central group while pushing the ideas out to people who may be kind of aligned with them, but maybe aren't active white supremacists yet. And they're hoping to radicalize them. Absolutely. Where are the Proud Boys when it comes to that spectrum? Ooh. That's a really good question. And that's a question that doesn't have one answer. When we talk about the, the sort of radicalization funnel, I was, I was monitoring extremist groups, um, you know, uh, really since about 2011 uh, of, of, of various stripes. And um, uh, a lot of the extremist groups on the more right wing side, either uh, racist or, you know, more of the uh, edgelord probably have to bleep the edgelord slash posting. For people who don't know what edgelord is, just <laughs> is, a, is a fair definition people who are pushing the boundaries of acceptable content for the sake of it. Exactly. You know, the, the the trolling kind of uh, 4chan sort of community, you know, that, that type of thing. 
you know, this provides sort of uh, what we call like a cognitive opening, you know, a, a way for people to, uh, especially if they feel aggrieved by one thing or another, um, for, for them to kind of be more amenable to this transgressive kind of content. Uh, and so transgressive humor in the form of memes, uh, you know, uh, towing up to and definitely going way past the line of political correctness and certain, certainly, I don't want to say morality. Well, I, I would agree with morality when it comes to things like <laughs> yes. Pinochet did nothing wrong t-shirts referencing the Chilean dictator who would throw people out of helicopters. Yes. Well, he had them thrown out of helicopters. He right. Was, he didn't do it himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the kind I, of I, stuff they would say. Making these kinds of jokes that are meant to, um, you know, raise the hackles of of the PC community or whatever. You know, that's where it starts, um, and, and that's where the desensitization starts. And and really, you know, one of the things with the Proud Boys is they definitely, I would say, compared to other groups, they it's not completely inaccurate to call them alt light. Um, a lot of um, researchers have noted them as being kind of a stepping stone, you know? Uh, people may start there and then they may move on to more extreme uh, kinds of ideologies, you know, unless they're in one of these groups in one of these areas that is very, uh, you know, extreme to begin with. Um, but there, there is considerable overlap in membership just as there was in the KKK and, uh, you know, more respectable groups like citizens, white citizens councils back in the, uh, you know, the, the segregation era. Yeah, there's, there's two things I want to unpack here that are, I think that are in this report that are super important. One is this kind of stunning back and forth between um, your, your colleague Samantha Kuttner and a proud boy. And it's, it's a kind of a tortured metaphor, but, but stick with me. Um, the proud boy saying, uh, this is a quote, uh, we clearly aren't for everybody's taste and that's okay. Some people like a glass of wine with dinner and some people like a shot of cheap whiskey. Our humor is the cheap whiskey. It may not be refined or taste that good with a salad, but it's fun to do and rebellious to the social norms. So that's oh, yeah. round one, right? So Absolutely. this is just fun. This is uh, edgy comedy, right? Exactly. That's not for everybody, but it's it's fun. It's it's You're one of the cool kids. It's heavy metal. It's punk rock. It's whatever. And then the follow-up question, so Kuttner asks, okay, let's continue this analogy. I was thinking more in terms of what is palatable. Whether the American public equals wine or beer, Proud Boys equals cheap whiskey, and white supremacists equal moonshine. If one develops a taste for cheap whiskey, can one not also develop a taste for moonshine? And they go back and forth a little bit, and she basically finishes like by asking the Proud Boy, okay, so you guys are cheap whiskey, but have you ever seen someone in your group, after getting a real taste for cheap whiskey, go on to huffing gasoline or, or, <laughs> or drinking moonshine, which would be your far right and your, you know, your neo-Nazis? And he goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. He says, oh. yes. Yeah. So that's the, the kind of the radicalization funnel. The other thing I wanted to ask about is what we've been calling in the newsroom like the Russian nesting doll <laughs> of extremism, where at, at the, you know, the biggest <laughs> of these Fabergé eggs, right, is you've got just conservative values. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing wrong with that. That's just one end of the, you know, the traditional mainstream political spectrum. Right. And then within that, you've got sort of harder-edged conservative, evangelical, Christian GOP stuff, but still part of sort of our mainstream, you know, political discourse. Mm -hmm. And then you start getting down to the local level. You've got your local GOP chapter, you know, totally respectable part of the local political process. And inside that, you've got these concerned citizen councils, which clearly not part of the GOP. They're their own thing. They're right. either a 5013C or they're a PAC or they're just a community organization. Right. Lots of membership crossover with the GOP, obviously, but different group. 
And then within these concerned citizen groups, councils, whatever they're calling themselves, then you've got Proud Boys chapters. And then within that, you've got a, a, a portion of the membership that are actual neo-Nazis or Oath Keepers or Three Percenters. And each little, you know, there's some crossover between each one. That is true now. Um, and, and arguably the Proud Boys have done this uh, more successfully than groups in the past. But it's it's been true for you know, um, for, for most of political time, um, you know, as soon as extreme extremist groups or groups that whose ideas were not uh, supported uh, by the mainstream in that society of that period of time, as soon as they realized that there is often sort of more strength and decentralization, um, you know, then they, they, they went for that. Uh, by, by decentralizing, then it becomes a massive game of whack-a-mole. And it's a game of whack-a-mole in which sometimes you may miss and hit someone who is, quote-unquote, respectable. Um, you know, but like I was saying earlier, you know, these groups benefit from one another. The, they benefit from the extremism and the fear that is generated by the uh, in, intentional intimidation uh, efforts by the Proud Boys. And the Proud Boys benefit from hiding in that nesting doll. So we've definitely seen that. And again, we're, we're talking nationwide trends where mm -hmm. we've seen politicians who would never have been photographed alongside a Proud Boy in 2016 yeah. be more than happy to it to do so in 2020. And so I, I definitely get the reciprocity thing. What, what I'm curious about is, you know, I think about the analogy of anarchists and socialists under fascism. At a certain point, their philosophies are incompatible. Right. But they were united because they both really hated the fascists. Right. And I don't disagree. <laughs> so is there a point at which the Proud Boys will have to part ways with, you know, some of the more extreme groups or, or some of the more respectable groups because of what they want? And wrapped up in that very long question is, what do they want? Ooh. Oh, OK. So, so let's start with the first one. Is <laughs> there, do you see a, a point in which the Proud Boys will have to part ways with these groups that they've made kind of tactical alliances with? Well, they don't really have to because those alliances are not explicitly public. You know, they're not open. Uh, so a, a Proud Boy gets in trouble for acting up. A, a Proud Boy chapter that does something that is, you know, dangerous to their image can be cut out, at least publicly. Right. So by not being directly, explicitly, expressly sort of connected to these more respectable groups, then they just go, well, that's an outlier. It, it, this is something else that we saw over and over again during the segregationist era. You know, some of the most iconic and, and, and really sort of paradigm shifting attacks, murders uh, that happened uh, on the behalf of um, segregationists against people who were desegregating. You know, some of them were carried out by people who were members of both the KKK and uh, concerned citizens councils. And all they had to do was go, OK, well, this person may have been a founding member, but, you know, we don't agree with them anymore. The strategic use of, of public relations is uh, is really effective. And it, and it, it definitely shows. I mean, it, it was done relatively successfully in the past. You know, if you think about it, Lee Atwater has, uh, you know, the legendary Republican strategist, you know, uh, he has this, this great quote talking about dog whistles. You know, we used to be able to say the N-word. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Um, but now we just say busing. 
um, you know, we, we couch it in these issues. It's not just couching it in the groups, but it's also couching it in the issues that appeal to, um, you know, the, the broader sort of majority within, within that uh, political realm. And this is something we've seen the Proud Boys do over and over again. They will cozy up to groups when it's beneficial and they will distance themselves from groups when it's not. Uh, keeping in mind, obviously, that different chapters operate slightly differently. But overall, that, that is something that is, you know, baked into Proud Boy DNA uh, nationally. Okay, well, we've got to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with my co-host, Kelly Kinoyer, and our guest, UNCW Professor Shardone Murray, as we continue our deep dive on the Proud Boys. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman with my co-host for this episode, Kelly Kinoyer, and our guest, Shardone Murray, who helped write a deep dive on the Proud Boys written for the House January 6th Committee. They wanted to know all about this group, its goals, its structures, and its endgames. You, in this report, referred to this group as neo-fascist. So what is their goal? Are they hoping to instill fascism in the United States? That that is that is another difficult question. Uh, that is another benefit of leaderless resistance and decentralization. You and know, irony. And I, and that jokey irony, right? It, it makes it hard to answer that question. Their beliefs, the things that they advocate for, are uh, things that are beneficial to uh, predominantly white males, but you know, uh, Western males, males in general, Christian males in general, and are detrimental to other groups. And they have been in more recent uh, in, in more recent uh, periods of time. They've been putting a lot more focus. I mean, they're, they're, a lot of them are very much true believers in the big lie uh, that there was uh, widespread election changing fraud. No belief or support of any of these sorts of electoral systems and that kind of thing. Their aims are hard to hard to separate from you know, sort of more uh, broad sort of neo-fascist ideals. You know, they, they want to shore up their own power. Uh, they want to derogate the power of others. Um, and, and, you know, they want to present this uh, vision of America that they have idealized. What has made it difficult at the local level has been the inability to tell who is doing this because the evolution, like, it like evolution, right? It, it brings strands of DNA from earlier iterations along mm-hmm. with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we're evolving in the womb, we still got our little tail. So <laughs> yep. you've still got some Proud Boys who seem to still be in the early Vice stand-up comedian Gavin McGinnis 2015 before all this started mode where it's just fun to say stuff that shocks people and it doesn't – or do stuff that shocks people – and to see yourself in a mask on the nightly news, and that seems to be a the end game is is that it's you know, it's performance art. That is the end game. Absolutely. Is bothering people basically owning the libs, <laughs> absolutely, right? or owning the conservatives sometimes. You know, just owning people, you right. know, owning owning mainstream society and making people uncomfortable, which was the kind of defensible role of transgressive literature and transgressive film. Like, you're supposed to be bothered by pink flamingos. Oh, absolutely. If that's as far as oh, it goes. Oh, don't get me started on how much I love John D- Waters, but anyway. Different podcast. <laughs> totally <laughs> different. different. Po- but some of them seem to be in it for that, and some of them seem to be in it 
because of this kind of Christian fascist belief that they seem to earnestly have underneath all these layers of irony. Yeah. And then some of them seem to have actual goals of political, like respectable political power, like either steering an election or deliberately like participating in an election. Oh, absolutely. One of the biggest misconceptions I think a lot of people have about extremist groups is that everyone who's a member, you know, everyone who's a member of G- of uh, Al-Qaeda, you know, or, or ISIS, every one of them is a true believer. Um, but people have a lot of reasons for why they join groups. They often join groups because they don't want to feel alone. They off, uh, One of the biggest predictors as to whether people will join any kind of extremist group or movement is whether they have family members or good friends in it. Um, you know, it makes them feel uh, supported, uh, not alone, uh, wanted. Uh, so there are going to be people who are drawn because this is totally in line with what they've always believed. And they are true believers. There are going to be people who are going to use this more opportunist, uh, opportunistically for political end goals. Uh, I mean, certainly, I, I definitely feel like this is uh, the camp that Roger Stone and, and a lot of people in, in Trump's political orbit that... Um, you know, uh, coordinate or have uh, overlap with these extremist groups. I definitely think they fall into that category. Uh, And then there's going to be people for whom it does kind of end with the joke. It does kind of end with something we call in in sociology, like uh, the deviance avowal, you know, like I reject society calling me deviant. I'm going to own it, you know, like like goths back when we were kids. Right. You know, like uh, I'm going to stand. I I don't fit in. So I'm going to stand out intentionally. And that gives them a source of power. Uh, And so in in any kind of organization, you're going to see individual motives, uh, motivations for why they joined and why they continue and why they don't desist, you're going to see those motives, a whole range of them. Uh, I kind of want to jump off of that and make a point about the appeal of this organization for a lot of uh, a lot of disaffected young men, especially white men. Um, I think that the point that a lot of people who are former military and police is very relevant here because those are organizations with a lot of fraternity. And when you leave it, you often feel a little bit out of place. You feel like you've lost a lot of community. Mm-hmm. So seeking that kind of community, especially in a group that is sort of militant and seeks out violence right. uh, in street brawls with Antifa, that kind of thing, that has a lot of appeal for people even beyond the actual political rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a point that I definitely wanted to make there. Uh, there's a lot of disaffection among young men in America today because yes. there's not a lot of opportunities for community uh, that's a little bit healthier and less violent. Right. Um, but I wanted to get to as well this localization because I think there's a lot of different flavors of Proud Boys. And that's something that I've definitely noticed uh, coming from the Northwest to mm-hmm. here. Uh, in the Northwest, it's a lot more of the meme thing. It's a lot more physically violent and uh, chest beating. Mm-hmm. And here, it's a lot more buttoned down and it's a lot more explicitly religious, which yes. I think is very interesting. I initially thought... Why did the Proud Boys change? But it was actually that I changed locations and the chapters behave differently. So can you talk about the flavors of Proud Boys? Oh, absolutely. Um, Okay, so one of the other benefits of um, the leaderless resistance, of this decentralization, uh, is that they have these central themes that are true of every every group. Any group is considered to be uh, a Proud Boys group so long as they stand for those central tenets, you know? Uh, Western chauvinism, venerating the housewife, small government, um, and and they they throw in anti-racism there and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, And so those are the kind of core 
you know, you see a lot of different flavors. Uh, some of the, you know, when you're looking at encrypted channels on Telegram, uh, you can see uh, very different flavors in terms of different groups and how they, uh, you know, address certain topics. I mean, there's certain things that they're, you know, pre pretty monolithic about. Uh, we were talking earlier about January 6th being either Feds or Antifa or whatever, you know. Um, but um, in in the Bible Belt of the South, there a lot of the groups take on a lot more so sort of uh, overtly sort of Christian uh, nationalistic kinds of views. Um, uh, in some places, even maybe sort of neo-Confederate, you know, there, there's different places that kind of push for different things. But they're, they they want membership uh, that all, without that, you know, I mean, uh, membership and these, you know, the spread of these narratives and this disinformation that, um, you know, is fawning or, you know, or, or exalts them in some way, shape or form or, or leads to um, them getting a, a, a bigger seat at the table. I mean, that's the lifeblood of that organization. And, and they, they, like any, any virus, like any organization, uh, their whole purpose is to continue. I want to uh, speak a little bit to the specific tenor of what we've seen for the Cape Fear Proud Boys. It seems like there's a lot more focus on the veneration of the housewife piece, which is this Im Im not even implied misogyny, misogyny focused on having women in the household and not working in jobs, that kind of thing. I see that a lot more here than I did in Portland. And you're, uh, you're talking about their in their not in their maybe their public appearances at school board meetings, but in their communications. In their communications, they have a Telegram channel that we've been monitoring, and they this is very a uh, buttoned up. We may Telegram not be monitoring channel. it after this. Well, <laughs> no, I think it's a very buttoned down. They speak explicitly to the media on this channel, so I think that they realize that there's a lot of people who are not actually Proud Boys. There's 600 members. There are not 600 Proud Boys in this town. I don't think. Um, I'm going to put a pin in that. I want to get to that. In a put a pin in that. We'll figure that out. Uh, but I think that that's something that they very strongly believe. The homophobia is also very prominent here. Uh, there's a lot of anti-queer activism. They've actually done actions like that. And there's a lot of rhetoric like that in their chat group, their chat group as well. I, I do want to jump in. Um, when we're talking uh, anti-queer, I think it's important that we really start to kind of separate some of these categories um, uh, because... When we're talking about the Proud Boys, you know, there, there is definitely sort of a, a you know, um, you know, there, there are some groups that are more or less anti-gay. But overall, uh, they're a very transphobic organization. When we say anti-queer, it's important to recognize that they uh, are not approaching all groups the same. Yeah, I will. I can say locally, I haven't seen as much directly anti-gay. What I've seen is the strategy of the, the grooming attack. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And this is a way to position yourself as not being anti-trans, but being pro-children. Exactly. Which is, you know, on the once you start to interrogate it, I think it falls apart. I think most people, you know, who have looked at this kind of stuff can, can see how this is kind of a specious argument. But instead of saying, you know, people shouldn't have access to affirmative care, they're instead saying, well, you're introducing the idea of transsexuality uh, to children at too early of an age. And the grooming argument, which I won't reiterate at length here, but is basically, you know, if you introduce sexuality to a young child, they, they, it blurs the lines between what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And specifically here in New Hanover County, which is the locus of a long running for over 25 years of sexual abuse of yes. children in the school system by school employees, mostly teachers, mm -hmm. they are weaponizing the well-earned distrust of the school district to sort of to to launch this anti-grooming narrative because it's very hard to say 
you know, oh, the schools would never do anything like that or never allow anything like that, where, where the attorney general of the state is currently investigating them for doing that. So that's, I, I think that has shaped the particular language here in New Hanover County, at least a little bit. It's opportunism at its best. And I mean, you've got to think, too, when we're talking about these grooming narratives, where do we see them? We don't just see them among the Proud Boys. We see them among mainstream politicians. Uh, we see Pat, them... Pat Bradford and Melissa Mason, who are the two GOP candidates, uh, I believe two top vote getters, actually, mm-hmm. um, in the Republican primary for school board. We see them among um, QAnon conspiracy theories. We see them among more anti-Semitic uh, groups, uh, neo-Nazi groups. I mean, the, the grooming narrative, uh, and particularly the grooming narrative that targets uh, trans individuals, uh, is one that, I mean, when, when they, uh, you know, do uh, polling, uh, public opinion polling, uh, our society is a lot more supportive of uh, gay rights uh, than we are of trans rights uh, more recently, especially those that consider themselves to be on, uh, you know, the conservative spectrum, right? You know, it's something the January 6th hearings talked about, these blended ideologies. If you can pick something that has a lot of support from a lot of different groups, um, then that's something that benefits your group. The unique, horrific situation uh, that is in the history here in uh, New Hanover County, it, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect topic that's going to unite a lot of people. And so that just grants legitimacy to those arguments. You know, and that's the strategy in any, in any paranoid politics. You know, if you're, if you're talking about the deep state, Right. Yeah. And that's that's a great paranoid political tactic because it's so nonspecific. But if anyone ever challenges you, you can bring up the church hearings where, you know, the Senate brought the CIA up and they're like, oh, actually, we were waging a secret war in Southeast Asia. Sorry about that. You know, like you can point to examples of, you know, illegal collaboration between the military and the industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us on the way out and we forgot to listen. Like, you know, there's there's that kernel of truth is super important to this kind of conspiracy theorists. But all right, so the last question I want to ask is we talked about the 600 plus members in some of the local chat forums. And one of the things I've heard from people who aren't necessarily Proud Boy supporters, just to be clear, mm-hmm. but they're, they will say things like, we've got affordable housing is out of control. We've got crime. We've got members of the Blood and 720 Folk Nation gang members committing real acts of violence, lethal acts of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so far, the, so far, the Proud Boys have done little more than get in some arguments. Why are we so concerned about them? So let me play devil's advocate for a minute and say, I've seen at most maybe seven, seven or eight Proud Boys show up at any one time, any one place. Mm-hmm. Is that the tip of the iceberg slash is there a concern that this group could grow and why should we be concerned about it? So after January 6th, huge growth in numbers. Um, And there's been a lot of favorable, uh, at least to their mind, favorable press coverage uh, for the Proud Boys here in Cape Fear. And and so that's going to lead to a a lot of increase in numbers. Now, that's not to mean that you have 600 members who are Proud Boys. What you do is you have 600 plus people who are either, you know, monitoring them or more likely are amenable to the things that they say are supportive of them. You probably have uh, a couple, you know, a couple of dozen that uh, consider themselves members um, and you have fewer still that are going to show up uh, religiously at these kinds of meetings and, and events. Uh, plus, you know, I mean, people have lives 
Um, it, you know, it, extremists are just like the rest of us, um, which is one of the things that's troubling about trying to study them is you can't just go, OK, these people are over here and these people are over here. You know, uh, they 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 work with us. Um, you know, they're around us all the time. Uh, and, and in the, given the right circumstances, just about anybody could be, you know, under the right circumstances can be drawn to these kinds of narratives to, to people who are doing something. And a lot of that positive coverage, you know, calling them all kinds of names or whatever, that doesn't matter, that that plays into their victimhood. They can go, hey, uh, you know, this isn't us. They're not paying attention to us. They didn't talk to us, whatever. But just having their name mentioned, having them mentioned as somebody who's doing something, whether it's violent or not, there's an implied violence in their intimidation tactics, which, you know, they admit themselves um, and, and is also foundational to the group as a whole. And that in and of itself, that's PR for them, uh, because people, especially those who are angry at something, they're looking for a scapegoat. They're looking for something to target. They're some, looking for something to attack. Uh, and they're looking for somebody who's actually doing something, you know, um, and and as long as uh, any Proud Boys chapter feels um, like they are having an impact, then that's going to promote their their recruitment. It's that warrior culture thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. My last question. Uh, I don't think we really got into the meat of this, but I want to talk about the explicit misogyny because I think mm. that that's one of the things that differentiates the Proud Boys from other organizations. That's their main identifier is the veneration of the housewife. They always hold that up. Western chauvinism. Western chauvinism. They mm -hmm. are so explicitly misogynistic. So I wanted to ask about what that is and what it implies. Well, I mean, it's it's really this idea of uh, Western masculinity on steroids. You know, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the sort of transgressive humor and that sort of thing. You know, early 2000s ideas, especially of I mean, formative years for McInnes, the founder and a lot of the members. Right. You know, uh, the, this idea of um, being a, a, an angry man that is you know, mistreated by society, overlooked by society. That's something that has a, a lot of cachet. Also, by focusing on the misogynistic part of it and by at least openly as, as a national group and among many of the groups by defining Western, not in terms of race, but in terms of culture, at least openly, right? Um, what they do is they open themselves up for a lot more people to 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 pull in. It's a bigger tent of grievances that they can pull in, right? And so, you know, as an organization, you know, they they are very uh, clear. They say, well, you know, uh, there, there's one uh, really long diatribe that uh, McInnes had when he was still the the head of the group, where he talked about, you know, when we say venerate the housewife, it's not that we're you know putting down women and, and so on and so forth, you know, women that work and so on and so forth. I thought that this is really interesting. The Irish Proud Boys group um, doing sort of a satirical post of the um, the, the the tenements, uh, you know, uh, the the tenants of the Proud Boys for the U.S. Uh, and so this Irish group had already posted the general tenants, you know, and and, and espoused that. Uh, but then they dragged their American brothers by saying things like uh, anti-racist unless it's cool. And uh, things like venerating the housewife, um, uh, you know, until she talks back and I and I hit her and and then, you know, I, I complain to my bros about how she's taking the kids from me and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's this real sense that women have a privileged place in society 
that women having the same kind of footing with men is, is a problem. I mean, this group is, it is a fraternity for men only. If there are girls, women that uh, are, are affiliated with them, they're called Proud Boys girls. They're not called members of the Proud Boys. You know, this is different from Oath Keepers. This is different from Three Percenters. You know, they accept, you know, uh, that that's not gender is not, um, um, you know, a deciding factor onto whether as to whether or not you can join. But it is for the Proud Boys. You know, I mean, at its heart, it's really just the old school movie brought to life. It's meant to be a... A, a, a hilarious but also politically powerful organization that is a fraternity for men to get to de- to get together, uh, do stupid stuff, uh, hit each other, and um, take down society. I don't know. Yeah, it's that last part that's kind of the problem. I think everything <laughs> right? you know. If when a bunch of guys get together and drink and do dumb stuff, I can defend that <laughs> as a guy who gets together Same. with my guy friends and drinks and does dumb stuff. I can probably defend that, but. I think one other thing I, w- I would point out from this report mm-hmm. is there's the really slippery process of trying to get into what they actually believe, which yes. I think we've we've covered. But then there's what they actually say in their communication chats. And one of the examples from this report is mm-hmm. it was a, and a lot of this communication is in the form of just sharing news stories. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a kind of meta language borrowed from from Facebook and other social media outlets yes. where you say what you mean to say by the kinds of stories you share. And one was about a young woman who had shared some imagery with the wrong person, her boyfriend, while she was being unfaithful, mm-hmm. which is clearly cuts to the core of this kind of toxic masculinity that you're talking about. And then she took her own life. Right. And they were effectively celebrating. Um, I won't go into the details of how they celebrated because it's just reprehensible. But right. I mean, that that tells you that is not... Whether or not it's a funny joke, it's not a kind of joke you tell unless you feel a certain kind of way. When they're talking about women on their platform, they're—I mean, it's—it's it's the classic, uh, the Madonna versus the soiled dove. I can't—I can't remember the terminology for that. It's yeah. a little stricter. It's—it's the, it's the Madonna and the whore is the yes, psychological yes. constructs they are working with because they're children. Right, right, exactly, right. They're either going to share these very idealized uh, visions of women who are staying at home, uh, which is not the case for a lot of their partners, uh, and that's all, something they always bring out whenever they're challenged on this, right? Women who stay at the home, women who have lots of children, women who don't work outside the home, uh, compared to, there's the good woman and the bad woman, and the good woman is the one that is that housewife ideal, uh, and the bad woman is every other woman that they've ever had contact with. I mean, the message, the subtext is there. Mm-hmm. Women I, are great, so long as they stay on that pedestal. Right, <laughs> exactly. We got to stay in that gilded cage, ladies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is the big takeaway for me, and I'll leave my part here, is that all of this, and reading this report crystallized it for me, is that in order to wrangle with this, you have to be willing to risk an interpretive reading of this. You cannot just take it at face value. There is no Proud Boys group or member um, representing themselves as a member of Proud Boys or any group that can be considered to be a reliable narrator just on their own. That's part of the the success of the group, you know? If they were reliable narrators, then when they made a joke that went too far, they couldn't say, it was just a joke, you're being a snowflake, right? Part of the group did something talking, uh, you know, for the Proud Boys and their ideology more broadly. If they did something that was reprehensible, you can't say, oh, yeah, they don't represent us. 
um, they're not reliable narrators, and, and they never have been. Uh, that's something that's been, uh, you know, uh, in, inherent in the group from its inception. Well, Professor Chardon Murray, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise on this with us. And of course, we will have a link to the report you co-authored from the Khalifa Eiler Foundation. Uh, people can purchase a hard copy for 40 bucks, but I think you can download it free from the site. So we'll have a link to that. Yes, absolutely. Please do. Um, I know it doesn't sound like beach reading, but I read this on the beach and I was pretty captivated. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. <laughs> I've got to say, for me, it's been a real pleasure talking to somebody else who takes this extremely seriously um, and has for a while. So thank you for coming in today. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guest, Professor Chardon Murray, and my co-host for this episode, Kelly Kinoyer. And of course, our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's show or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.